from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Our guest today is a familiar face to all of our listeners in the Canton area. Michelle Charles has been president and CEO here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra since 2011. She was promoted to the position after serving as our orchestra's marketing manager for a year. She previously served on the board of the orchestra and was a member of the Canton Symphony Chorus. She is a trained operatic soprano and sang with the Cleveland Opera, before transitioning to the administrative side of things as that organization's marketing manager. Michelle Charles, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Hello. Um, so just getting right into it, I guess we kind of know this, but if you wouldn't mind sharing with the listeners just a little bit about your uh, career path and how it ultimately led you here to the Canton Symphony. All right. When I graduated in the early 90s uh, with a degree in music history, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And uh, my advisor suggested I um, went, go to the opera and talk to them. So I did, and I met with their marketing director and co-founder, and she gave me an internship. So I did that for about six months, and then they hired me as a marketing assistant and then eventually the marketing manager. Um, I left there in 1997 when my first son was born, and I was pretty much a stay-at-home mom for until 2007. Um, I, while I was at home, I had a music studio and taught piano and voice and preschool music. Um, and then I came back and joined the board of the symphony um, as well as the chorus. And then in 2010, they hired me um, as the marketing manager and when my predecessor left, I put my threw my hat in the ring, and here we are. <laughs> Yay. Very good. So you are a female CEO of an orchestra, and you are a still, unfortunately, a minority in that regard, despite the fact that uh, there are more and more female CEOs of orchestras and all sorts of arts organizations. But nevertheless, you're still a minority. In the orchestra world, Ever since we instituted the behind-the-screen audition, the people on stage have had a fairly even gender representation, but that's not the same in the highest levels of arts administration. Why do you think that is? You know, I think a lot of it is that women, because of just by nature of how we're raised, um, don't very often step up and say that they can do that job. You know, men are, just the way men are wired and the way they're brought up, they tend to just know that innately that they can, they can do that job, whether or not they have the experience. And so they put their, they put their resume in and they, they have the confidence to say that, you know, that they're um, good for that job. Um, and I think a lot of women are hesitant to do that 
you know, when I applied for this job, honestly, I had no business doing it. I didn't have any experience. I just knew I could. You know, I had watched my predecessor doing it and thought, I can totally do that. <laughs> Did I have training to do it? No. Did I have the experience to do it? No. But thankfully, the board, you know, had some, you know, faith in me and gave me the opportunity to, to try. And, you know, they named me interim and I was interim for about nine months and they um, kind of held my hand through a lot of it. But I think you just have to have the confidence to, to dive in. But I do think it's hard for women to do that. And, you know, the society in general makes it hard for any woman to work outside of the home. You know, you're expected to be a superwoman and raise your kids and take care of your husband and do the housework and also run a company. <laughs> so, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of time and effort and understanding on the part of your family. Um, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. So yeah. just to follow up with that a little bit, what motivated you to go back into the workforce in arts mm -hmm. administration after being a stay-at-home mom for the better part of a decade? Sure, so, yeah. Um, you know, I missed working. I missed being around other people. My, my brain, I felt like my brain was deteriorating being at home with little kids. Um, you know, I love, I love my kids and I, those of you who know me, I have three boys and I'm very proud of all three of them. Um, and they were very, they have always been very supportive. You know, they have all volunteered and everything. So, um, but to answer your question, I was, I guess I just, I needed a change, you know, after 12 years, I knew teaching wasn't my thing. I was getting really tired of those bad piano students. Um, <laughs> so it was time. Yeah. I think, it, you know, you've only been in the, in the field, not your entire life. You had that, you know, the gap of 10 years staying at home, but while you've been in the field of arts management, I mean, you mentioned that there are less women in administration in general, just because of the way our society kind of works. Um, while you've been in arts management, have you felt that like that pressure or that, you know, any discrimination because you are a woman in the field and like, understood like either implicit or explicit bias just because of the nature of who you are in this position? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there have been a lot of times when, you know, you, I make a decision and I, then I'm questioned by that, by um, a male in the room. I've been in meetings where I've asked a question and was, I was the only woman in the room. Mm. And the, the guy that I asked the question to wouldn't even look at me. He answered my question by looking at the man next to me. And thankfully the man next to me um, respects me and I work with him a lot. And he said, you do realize that she was one that asked the question, right? <laughs> yeah. And he looked a little puzzled, like it didn't even occur to him. So, you know, that kind of thing happens a lot. Mm. And there's that term mansplaining <laughs> it a lot. You know, where, where people, men think that because you're a woman, you don't quite understand what's going on and they feel the need to explain it and dumb it down. And it, that bothers me. I, you know, I'm a smart cookie and to have somebody dumb it down for me is, I think is very offensive. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. Um, 
hearing you say that because, I mean, I've only been working in this field for just a little bit, but I have had you as a boss. So I think, you know, my, my experience has been very different. And so this might be jumping the gun a little bit, but just because we're on this topic, do you see it? I mean, especially with our workplace um, and the people that you've hired and the environment that we have here, do you see it changing in the, because I, I mean, changing it obviously, but even in boardrooms and that, do you see that starting to change a little bit? Um, you know, I hope so. I think the symphony world is going to be slower to change because just by nature of who our patrons are. And, you know, that's part of one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast because, right. you know, our patrons tend to be older and white and, You know, it's hard. I think those boards are going to be harder to change out. Um, you know, you want to get people on your board that represent not only your organization, but your community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen that with our board. You know, we love them and they support us, but they're not exactly young. Most of them are not exactly younger. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, boards that I serve on, I serve on boards where I'm respected for what I bring to the table and not necessarily because they're trying to fill a gender gap. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's important to me. Right. Right. And it's interesting for me because I don't have the same perspective as a man and learning about the things that my female colleagues, both in the performing world, as well as in the administrative world, have had to deal with at times by virtue of their gender has always really surprised me. However, I do have a lot of hope that my generation, the millennial generation, and Rachel's as well, that, that things can definitely change, especially in the world of the arts. Yeah, I hope so too. You know, for me, as a, a female leader, it has been important to me to inspire those who work under me and, you know, hope that I can make a little change in their mindset or just to give them the safe place to be supported and to hopefully grow into, you know, a strong female leader. Absolutely. So tell us, what do you think are some of the differences between the perspectives that men and women can bring to executive leadership? That's a good question. I, I would say, women tend to bring a more emotional side to it. You know, every decision I make, I don't make just with my head. I, there's a lot of heart and gut to it. I'm always very aware of how my decision is going to impact others. Um, stereotypically, I don't know if all men are like that. You know, the, the, the male leaders that I have interacted with, I would say, um, and not that they're incapable of it. I just think it's, you know, men have been raised to not, not feel that emotional side and not have that present as much and in the forefront. Whereas women, I think we're, we're supposed to be the emotional ones. So I do try to lead with more of a nurturing side and a more coaching side. You know, I feel like part of my role is really to, to, help someone grow and be not only a better person, but a better employee, you know, a successful employee to me is not someone who stays for the rest of their career. I want them to 
grow and then move on and, and experience new things. So, mm. yeah. And I, you, me- you mentioned a couple of times now, you know, having to make decisions as a leader and, and, and as a woman, how sometimes that gets questioned, um, especially I think recently, but, um, you've probably had to make some major changes that weren't universally liked um, as you've been an executive director. So how did you react to having to make these changes? And, you know, did people eventually come around to it? Uh, did you, how did you manage fallout from that? Or, you know, how did you deal with the, the situation of having to make a major change that wasn't universally liked? Um, you know, I, I have found that if I present facts you know, it's hard to be argued with. So while people don't necessarily agree with me, if I have facts to back it up, um, I I tend to get more followers that way. Um, You know, when we first started the pop series, that was one of the things that I was really adamant about when, when I first started. And our first Speed Bumps concert, I actually did, even before I was officially CEO, I was still the interim. And that was a huge risk, and the board was really not excited about it. And I kept saying, I, I know this is going to work. I know this is going to work. And the first concert lost a little bit of money, but not a ton. And I knew that we had, had, we had a success there. The board wanted me to stop it, and I refused. I said, no, we have to give it a try. We can't just do one and then call it a failure. We have to keep pushing at it. And I was met with a lot of, well, we did pops before and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, we're doing it again. <laughs> and, you know, now we have concerts that, like Queen, this past spring, sold out six weeks before the show. Right. So, you know, I think now they believe me and say, <laughs> okay, well, I guess we do have a thing here. But, you know, it, it took almost 10 years. Right. So... It's, it's knowing that sometimes I just have a gut feeling that I'm right, and I just I, I stick with it, and I don't back down. I'm very stubborn, <laughs> as you guys know. So um, sometimes I just I don't back down. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So you mentioned the pop series, which, of course, I have had the pleasure of being intimately involved in during my time here with the orchestra. But uh, – including the pops, what are some of the things that you have spearheaded under your time, during your time here at the Canton Symphony that have helped to grow the audience and donor base, as well as increase the orchestra's stature and visibility in our community? Well, I think, you know, the innovative pops, first of all, you know, not just doing the music of Queen and the music of Led Zeppelin and those that we've done, but, you know, really combining them with local bands and talent. Um, I think was it was really huge for us. But then I think the whole Divergent series that we have started in 2018, um, I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of being able to support local music in, you know, in Northeast Ohio. That's really huge for me, and it's something that's uh, really important to me. Um, and so to be able to combine that with our musicians and to bring in this whole new audience has been really special and to watch that grow. And um, I think that's one of the things I miss the out of our, our, you know, now that we're shut down is, is those intimate concerts where 
to see the the faces of our musicians and say, wow, these guys are really good musicians. Mm -hmm. And then to have the the band say, holy crap, they're just like us. You know, it's, I think that's, it's really cool to see that music transcend. Um, Another one of my things I'm really proud of is the Dancing Wheels collaboration Mm. um, that we did a few years ago, honoring the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. and to be able to partner with that organization, I have such great respect for Mary Verdi Fletcher and what she does with her organization. And I think that probably was one of my proudest moments to see that come to fruition. Just for the listeners who may not be familiar with it, tell us a little bit about what Dancing Wheels is. So Dancing Wheels is a fully integrated dance organization they have what Mary calls standers and sitters. So they have people who are in wheelchairs and those who are not, Um, and they dance. And it's one of the most incredible things you can ever see. And to hear the stories from her people that are in chairs, um, you know, people who not necessarily were paralyzed their whole lives, but just maybe were in a car accident or something. Um, And to see the grace and, and, strength of their their abilities it's just it's really incredible it's really incredible and to have a world premiere work that was created specifically for this purpose to be danced with people who are physically challenged I think it was I don't think I breathed through that entire performance it was just unbelievable and the piece was Stephen Melillo's symphony number four correct right correct And Michelle also alluded to our Divergent Sounds series, which pairs small groups, usually a trio or quartet of Canton Symphony musicians, with a local band or musical act that has been extremely successful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I encourage all of you in the area to come check it out once we reopen. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, now that we haven't been able to be open for a while, I, I mean, classical music kind of the whole world, but classical music really was upended uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think we all remember, I remember really vividly when we closed the office, because I had a program that morning <laughs> that I was supposed to be doing, but we, you know, we canceled all four weeks of activities um, starting uh, Wednesday, March 11th, or around like 2.30 in the afternoon. And then um, I was busy making calls and everything, but, you know, the four weeks then turned into the rest of the season and the rest of the season is, you know, we know where we're all at now. Um, but you were ahead of the game really when it came to shutting down as opposed to orchestras around the country, really. I mean, I remember getting emails from the League of American Orchestra with a list of orchestras that had shut down. And for a while it was like us and maybe like a couple other people who had canceled a concert. Um, and then in a couple of days, it became very clear and a lot of other people started to shut down. But um, how did you come to your decision before the government and most other workplaces um, about to the making the decision to shut down? So the night before, on March 10th, I was in bed reading and I was scrolling through Facebook, actually, and I came across an article that actually one of our musicians had posted. And... I don't even remember where it was, um, but it was talking about this virus and the 
incredible responsibility that a leader of an arts organization has, that not only do you need to protect your staff, but you're responsible for everyone you put on stage and everyone who comes into the, into the hall. And it just kind of hit me that this, I, I mean, I just had this feeling that the, the virus was not going to go away. And it really, the, that overwhelming sense of responsibility just smacked me in the face. And mm-hmm. I literally, that's when I texted Rachel yeah. and Mike Costco and said, we're canceling Symphony Land tomorrow. Right. And poor Michael was on his way back from Florida. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll deal with it. But it really was that article that made me make that decision. And I, and I decided then and there that no one was going, I was not going to be responsible for anyone getting sick on right. my watch. Right. And it didn't matter who it was. And that has really guided my decisions from then on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, now we're kind of in this, this space of what does the rest of the future look like? And it's, it's really interesting, but I, I think, you know, as a leader, I've really admired how you've handled this. So how do you, how do you think this is, I mean, you've kind of alluded to it already, but uh, challenged your leadership and you as a leader, what, what do you think you'll get out of this the most? Um, it's challenged me in a lot of different ways. I mean, I think it's forced me to really be stronger with the board. Mm. Um, you know, in the past, I was hesitant to push them too hard. But I think in this situation, I, I'm really pushed by my gut. And so, you know, I spent weeks and I, I joke with my kids that the poor kids are, are now, um, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but they, they have now having to succumb to a mother who knows way too much about this. (laughs) And, you know, I devout in those early weeks, I devoured anything that I could about it. And, you know, I put together an hour-long presentation for the board that ultimately was what caused us to, you know, finish canceling the rest of the season. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I overwhelmed them, I think, with information, but ultimately it gave me their support. Um, But I think the biggest challenge for me right now is I'm struggling to kind of have an identity you know, I'm running an orchestra that's not an orchestra. And, I, yeah. you know, Matthew's nodding. And I know that he as a conductor feels the same way. And I know Gerhardt does too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, so who are we if we're not an orchestra? And I think that's a big thing that a lot of us are thinking about. But I also think that it's really important for us to kind of hunker down and, you know, save our money and really try to figure out a way to be fiscally sound when we come out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's our chance to kind of rethink who we are in the community. Um, and I don't want to just do a performance or a live stream just to say we're doing something. Right. I think it needs to be very deliberate mm-hmm. um, and meaningful if we're going to do it. Right, right. It kind of leads into just like a little bit of like the short term and long term future of of Canton Symphony in regards to the pandemic. You know, short term is very still very up in the air and long term seems even more up in the air. But, you know, what are you thinking about 
that can't here at Canton in regard to the virus in our future? So before the pandemic, you know, we were not positioned all that well, honestly. You know, mm -hmm. you guys have heard me talk about, you know, the finances are not the greatest and support for orchestras in general is not huge. And here we are in a community where, you know, we're blessed with a lot of arts, but it's also, we're blessed with a lot of arts. So there's a lot of competition for the dollars and it's not like it's a growing community, it's shrinking. Um, so I almost feel like this pause is good for us in a way because it's, it is giving us this time to step back and rethink and, you know, stockpile a little cash, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And I think having that opportunity, this unstressed opportunity for us to be looking at where we want to be as an organization is really huge. I mean, I think I'm really proud of the, what's come out of this for us as an organization in the last six months. And I don't think it would have happened had we been in that hustle and bustle of a normal season. So. And this podcast, of course, being one of the many exactly. things. So we're talking about minorities in the classical music world in right. the podcast. And a part of this has come out of some of the developments we've witnessed in the world over the past few years. Not only, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also movements such as Black Lives Matter and Me Too. Now, orchestras are not political organizations, but many people see these as political issues, of course. So how can we authentically respond to issues such as this while still remaining true to our mission and focus as an orchestra? Um, I think, you know, when we, when the Black Lives Matter movement first started over the summer and you guys came to me and said, we have to do something, we have to do something. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about it. And, you know, part of what I love about having younger staff is the energy and excitement that you guys have. And, you know, I wanted to give you the opportunity to have a voice, but I wanted to make sure we did it in the right way. And, you know, I had to keep reining you back and saying, okay, well, let's think about this. Let's talk to people and let's research it, not just do something to, for the sake of doing something. Um, and I think what has come out of it, this podcast is meaningful. I think it's going to give people the opportunity to have really strong conversations that um, need to be happening in the orchestral world. Um, you know, the orchestral world has suffered from, you know, from the stigma of being a white, you know, organization to a stiff upper class organization to a no minority organization, you know, all these different um, stigmas. And I think we really need to break through that if we're going to survive. Um, there was a reason why we did hip hop meets the symphony for our first virgin concert. You know, I wanted to show that this series was going to try to break through some stuff. It wanted to be another white group playing with some white musicians. Um, so that's been important to me. And I think that, I feel like I'm rambling and talking in circles, but 
I mean, I, I think we need to have these intentional dis discussions and I hope that this, these discussions will spread out to other orchestras and they really look at seriously what they need to be doing to make a change, not just, oh, we've got a diversity policy. Oh, we have an inclusive policy. That whoop-de-doo, anybody can write stuff down on a piece of paper. Right. But it's really intentionally looking at things and making a conscious decision to change. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you know this podcast and having conversations has been, I think, hopefully a really good experience for everyone who here, me and Matthew, and, and learning about other people's perspectives and really just being able to gain knowledge um, and, and, and create these conversations. And then, but then there's the, also the fact of the reality of our own community and that uh, the city of Canton is 21% African-American and we are very close to the city of Canton. We're not directly downtown, but, uh, but we are within the city, but limits, we are in the city of, of Canton and our audience does not look <laughs> like the city of Canton by any means. And, you know, there's this podcast, but then there's the, the issue of representing our community. And uh, I was, you know, looking at our community, how do we authentically engage with that pop the population of our community that we don't see in our concert hall? And, um, you know, there's the, the, the balance of, we don't just shove something on people that they don't want, right? But how, how do we stay relevant to a large portion of our population that we just don't see every day? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. and I, I think orchestras have been looking at this for years. And, you know, we have tried, we do, you know, we're in all the Head Starts, which is mm -hmm. definitely more of the population of, of the city. Mm -hmm. We do our, our concerts in the parks, would, and we try very deliberately to be in different areas, yet we still see the same types of people coming right. to those concerts. Um, now, when we do Divergent and we do hip hop or we do jazz, we obviously did see a different type of population there, but do they come back and see classical symphony? I don't think so. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the, what the answer is. And I think it's going to take some really, I don't know. <laughs> Even when we do, you do a gospel symphony concert. It's not like you get sold out with black right. consumers. You know, it's you still are getting your same patrons who come because it's a symphony concert, so therefore they should be there. You know, right. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Mm -hmm. I did because yeah. I probably would be making a lot more money. <laughs> I think you know. Hopefully, hopefully that's what this this podcast can help us understand better, and then also just people who listen as to it why don't we see a diverse population at symphony concerts? And I think we know some of the answers about access and inclusion and do people even feel comfortable in the hall, but uh, we don't know the answer of how to make it more inclusive. And hopefully this podcast will help us understand better, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the, I don't know how long all of our educational programming has been going on the way it is now. I've been here now, this is my fourth season with the orchestra and I have seen Symphony Land and, of course, have conducted the kinder concerts where Canton City Schools and the Head Start programs have participated. So hopefully, by exposing the youngest residents of the city of Canton to classical music, hopefully, as they age, they 
will remember that experience and keep us in mind as they choose how to be entertained, where to put their money for entertainment as they uh, get to the point where they can make those decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. That is the hope, you know, and that's why a few years ago we started offering those free. I mean, that was really important to when we finally got enough support and grants that we could do that for free. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, being in the Head Start and having that opportunity to give those kids that experience is huge as well. Um, having the opportunity to, to let all students come in for free, I think is important. Mm -hmm. um, to give those kids access to it, whether or not they can afford it. Um, I, I, I just think the more we can expose them, but it still is not going to change just the sheer fact that they don't, they weren't brought up that way and they don't right. feel comfortable that way. And, right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a huge question. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is a big question. So at the current time, how do you view the state of things in the orchestral industry at large? I think it's kind of perilous right now, to be honest. I think that, um, you know, especially even before the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic has thrown us a curveball that obviously no one expected. But the fact, by the sheer fact that we really, that the majority of orchestras financially cannot do a performance with limited numbers in the hall. Um, you know, we were, but we were perilous before that, you know, orchestras in general, you hear closings every year of another orchestra that's shut down because they just can't make their budget anymore. Um, support is dwindling. Um, our major patron base is dying. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, and that's why I go back to saying that this pause, I don't think is necessarily a, a horrible thing for us because I do think orchestras really need to take stock in um, what they're doing and how they're approaching things and how, how they can, you know, come back in a, in a stronger way. Mm -hmm. I think, um, and even in light of the pandemic, I think there there could be a brighter future for the orchestra industry, given that we take this pause and really take stock of things. Um, what do you see as something that would, especially in Canton, if you could have like the the golden ticket or the the perfect the perfect outcome? What what would you most wish for the Canton Symphony in the future? What would be on your 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 bucket list of things to happen for us? Um, I think for us, it's getting the recognition that I think we really deserve. You know, I think we're kind of like this, I mean, people say it all the time, we're this hidden gem, you know, we're, but those who quote unquote are in the know, you know, um, who have heard other orchestras in, in the area and in the country know what a, an incredible talent we are. And you know, here's, here are people who have it in their backyard and are still driving an hour to see another orchestra. Um, I, I wish for Canton to really get the acclaim. I mean, we're doing a lot of really incredible things and we have the flexibility because we're smaller um, 
that we can do these really incredible things and take risks that other orchestras can't. You know, doing things like Bela Flex Banjo Concerto and doing things like the Dancing Wheels or Divergent or whatever it is. Um, I think it would be nice if people, if that was noticed. Um, so much attention goes to the big orchestras, right. and rightfully so. I mean, they get a, they're great. Cleveland, Atlanta, St. Louis, I mean, whoever you look at, they're all great orchestras. But there's also a lot of really great orchestras that are smaller. And I think those need to be paid attention to. Um, I think though that's where the real innovation is coming from. Right. And I can speak as somebody who got their graduate degree in New York City <laughs> and who attended many concerts at Carnegie Hall with world-renowned orchestras coming in from all over the world. I can say from experience that this is a great orchestra. The Canton Symphony is truly a great orchestra. And it is incredible to me that a city of 75,000 can have an orchestra of this caliber. It really, it, it is a gem. Yeah. And I absolutely agree from the artistic side of things here as a, as associate conductor here, I agree. I, I really hope that we can get the recognition that the quality of the music making warrants. Yeah. I mean, I got to hear, you know, last night we had a concert at Gervasi, one of the few performances we've been able to do since March. And I, I got to hear two of our musicians and I was just in the back and a couple of times I got a little misty eyed because they're so talented. And I think it, since I haven't been able to hear them consistently for a while, I kind of forget. And then I hear them play and it's like, oh gosh, they're so talented. So we're so, I mean, we're just blessed with the, the quality that we get, we get here. I think it's amazing. Absolutely. So our podcast is called Orchestrating Change. So we always ask every guest, how do we orchestrate change? How do we move our organization towards a more inclusive future that is more representative of the world we serve? And what can our listeners do to help us orchestrate that change? I think that this podcast is going to be a huge help for us. I think having these truly in-depth and meaningful conversations with people who face these challenges on a daily basis, um, I think that is going to help us to grow and to become a better representation of the population as a whole. Um, and I've said this word before, you know, I think everything we do has to be intentional and everything has to have meaning and I don't want to hire a bunch of people just to say that we've done it. You know, I don't want to have another old white guy saying, oh, we're diverse and inclusive just to say it. I think it needs to be meaningful and intentional and the right thing. Um, and that way, I think it'll, it'll stick. You know, if we just haphazardly do something just for the sake of doing it, then it's a one-off and people are like, ah, look at the Canton Symphony. They put five black musicians and played a black piece and woo. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to really sit down as a group and think about where the future is and what we need to do to get us there. 
Absolutely. Anything else you want to tell us? Final thoughts. I think so. Is there anything else you want to know? I mean, sure. Yeah. Time. You know, it, so many things I would like to know, Michelle. <laughs> oh, when will the virus... You're, you're the expert on the virus. When will it end? Oh, God. <laughs> looking good oh gosh i think um, we're in it for another year yeah matthew is gonna crumble i will crumble he'll turn up, into a little pile of dust no i, I th really i'm still devouring information right you know i am i think it's i think it's interesting that the world's great pauses are for a reason i think lots of people have said this that mm -hmm. this pause is good actually for a lot mm -hmm. of people to really pay attention to what they've been doing and what they're doing and how they can be better about it. Um, and I think that you've done a really great job of, of leading us through this. And I know that each of us individually have little mental breakdowns on random days where we were like, we can't do it anymore. Um, but we always get through it, I think. And um, yeah, I think that this organization will be better because of it. And, you know, this podcast. So yeah. I'm really proud of, of the staff. Um, I think that we have grown as a staff together during this time, mm -hmm. even though we're not together physically. Right. You know, I think our weekly meetings that we have are much more, um, I'm getting a little teary. No, I think that they're much more meaningful conversations, right. you know, because I think we're all so happy to see each other. And because we can't, we don't take it for granted mm -hmm. because we can't see each other every day. Right. And, you know, I've been, I love watching everybody laugh and joke. And, you know, when, when the staff wants to get together after hours, that makes me happy. Right. You know, I'm kind of like a little proud mama. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cool. Oh, goodness. Michelle Charles, <laughs> it has been an absolute pleasure having Thank you, you. as a guest well. today. Michelle Charles is the president and CEO here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra, a position she has held since 2011. Are you interested in local, unique stories from your community? Tune in each Thursday to What's Up Stark and get to know the many great people in and around Stark County making a difference. What's Up Stark can be found everywhere you get your podcasts. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.